0: The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is Why Metta? And beginning the talk, uh, I'd like to read you the Metta Sutta. <clears throat> this is a translated out of the Pali by the monks from the Amaravati Monastery in England. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small. The seen and the unseen, those living near and far away. Those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. So, why metta? A question that certainly has some very obvious answers as well as some answers that may not be immediately obvious to us. And our response to why metta or why practice metta may certainly bring uh, to light a variety of responses as the question emerges at at times throughout the years of our practice. So this evening I'd like to explore a few possibilities in response to this question, in part through various stories, some ancient stories as well as contemporary stories, and some discussion. So beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who were, went to a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters. These supporters offered to build the 500 monks' huts for the monks to, monks to stay in during their reigns retreat. And they were also happy to keep the monks' alms bowl filled during their three-month practice period. And so the monks moved in and began to practice vipassana, to practice insight, the insight practice. It's said that the unseen, unseen beings the forest devas who lived uh, in this area, in this forest became quite fearful of the monks and actually felt quite put out, put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't only there for a day or two but uh, seemed to be dwelling in their forest. And so they began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and frightening sights and emit some very distasteful or odors, hoping that this would um, make the monks leave their forest. And actually, the monks soon became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their meditative state, their concentration. And some even developed fever and pain, dizziness, in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing and all of them felt at some point that it was going to, it was just impossible to continue practicing there in that forest. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale to which the Buddha responded my beloved monks go back to exactly the same forest And practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the uh, Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest. And again, saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was this. Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and difficulties this time however i will give a true give you a true weapon of protection and it said that it was at this point that the buddha offered the metta teachings for the first time offered them to this group of monks out of their great respect for the buddha the monks uh, didn't dare contradict uh, his wishes and so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest and for a while continued experiencing these feelings of fear, anxiety. While at the same time they very diligently and very virtually, vir- virtuously practiced metta. And soon there were no more fearful sights, no more fearful sounds, no more distasteful smells. Whereas the devas in that forest, who had previously been quite hostile toward the monks, their anger, their resentment disappeared. And they began to actually feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect. Welcome and even reverence began to be the Devas' experience, it's, it said, along with a sense of feeling quite connected, like with family, and then the inclination arising within the Devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest, like tigers, so that they could practice their metta peacefully. It said that all 500 of these monks at some point began practicing Vipassana meditation again with Metta as their foundation. And it said that because they were able to practice meditation peacefully, that they all, every one of them, became Arahants, became enlightened beings during that very rainy season retreat. So an ancient story. The great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. With this quality, this capacity to stay present, to connect with, with a heart that's fearless, with a mind that's free of ill will. This capacity is called for again and again and again in our practice, throughout our life. One of the primary keys as we practice Mekta and all of the divine abodes is patience. And this is really an important key. The Buddha talked a lot about patience in a number of different ways. And one of the things he said was that there's no higher rule than patience. He said there's no nirvana, no freedom higher than forbearance. He said no greater thing exists than patience. That's uh, quite a statement. about patience. So what does this mean? In speaking of forbearance as the highest rule, as Nibbana or Nirvana, Nibbana being the Pali word, it's not meant as a quality of grim endurance, a kind of putting up with it or kind of toughing it out. That's not patience. Not what the Buddha meant at all, by patience. It's really about the quality of willingness, the qualities of softness, acceptance, forbearance in this sense. Softness, receptivity, willingness, acceptance. This is patience. And it's not about being passive or being passively walked over, so to say. Not that kind of forbearance, not that kind of willingness. It's a patience that brings us to abide in our life, which of course also means abide in our meditation practice, in a way that allows us to approach and be open to to really fully be present with each moment whatever is unfolding in each moment to be really fully present with openness with respect honoring honoring the moment no matter what we're facing in the mind the heart, the body, and no matter what's coming to us from the world around us. So to forbear in this sense, this is at least in part what the Buddha was talking about, the patient heart of radical acceptance. A few years ago I was uh, driving in my car And I turned on the radio, and uh, Dolly Parton was singing. And I was struck by the fact that teachings can come from anywhere. And this is a line from her song that really struck me. If you want to be a rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. I'm not sure if it's really politically or spiritually correct to put Dolly Parton and the Buddha in the same paragraph, but... I thought it was a great teaching. (laughs) This practice of metta is really a very powerful way, a very powerful tool of introducing our heart, introducing the mind to patience. A really very clear way of cultivating patience. A patient, loving heart and really coming to know very deeply in an immediate experiential way that this is an advantage. This is really an advantage. This is a great benefit in one's life. Quite a number of years ago now, when I was the resident teacher for staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, we would have a weekly a dharma program on various topics. And so for a few weeks we explored patience. I asked them to share their experience of patience. And I asked that whatever was shared be from experience, not from the discursive or philosophical uh, or more intellectual approach. So what was their experience of patience? These are some of the things that were said. Patience feels like body-mind calm, quietude, serenity, friendliness. Someone said smoothness. Someone else said persevering, openness, peace. Another one said okayness, satisfactoriness ease another said patience is the highest form of devotion another term that described the experience of patience was hastening slowly and then I asked them what does impatience feel like what's that experience somebody said war restlessness, edginess, sometimes anger, heat, agitation, wanting, irritation, uneasiness, not being able to stand it, not being able to bear it, unfriendliness, someone said. All of these experiences, both sides, patience and and impatience, something we, we all know, maybe Maybe we haven't explored it quite as carefully as the staff at IMS did during those few weeks, but we all know, all know those experiences. This quality of patience actually implies faith. Not a blind faith, but a wise faith. A kind of we'll see, or I don't know, we'll see attitude. And also a faith that we're doing our best. And that's important. Rainier Maria Rilke talked about patience in a very beautiful way. He said, there's no measuring with time. No year matters, and ten years are nothing. Being an artist, and we could look at meditation as an art, it really is an art. Being an artist means not reckoning and counting, but ripening like the tree, which doesn't force its sap and stands confident in the storms of spring, without the fear that after them may come no summer. It does come. But it comes only to the patient who are there as though eternity lay before them. So unconcernedly still and wide I learn it daily and sometimes with pain to which I am grateful. Patience is everything. As we cultivate metta and live more patiently as we're more and more still and wide and at the same time determined. It's inevitable that there'll be an increase of joy, peace, fearlessness, and unconditional acceptance and kind-heartedness and a growing and greater ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life. It's inevitable actually that this will happen. With this cultivation of metta we're inviting the opening the expansion of the heart, the mind. and using the metaphor of of the breath metta is like the experience of breath moving through us it's intangible boundless empty where from, where to and yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and out from us so we might ask, what is it, again? One definition from the Buddha speaks of it as non-ill-will, the absence of ill-will in relationship to ourself, our body, our mind, however they're manifesting from moment to moment, and the absence of ill-will in relationship to others. The absence of aversion, no aversion, Often the Buddha described various aspects of freedom in the negative. So that's one definition of metta. There's no comparing of ourself in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride. No self-depreciation. No self-judgment and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will. How often, for instance, even in this retreat, we might think of the person next to us, or maybe across the room, how often might we think that their practice is much better than ours? Or maybe much inferior to ours, to the way that we're practicing. That felt judgment, for instance, that they're better than me. They're definitely better than me. I have such a scattered mind. There's so much non-meta coming up. I'm no good. I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. I'm great. Look at, no sleepiness, not even a little bit. No movement, so still. I'm so concentrated, so open. And look at that person kind of nodding, nodding, that sleepy nodding. And they're moving, frowning even. this is not meta. We're actually creating a separation, me and other, continuing to create and sustain a separate self. And actually the heart, the mind, is contracted in the comparing mind mode. True metta is impersonal in nature. So again, we might ask the question, why metta? And something that was uh, quite amazing and very important for me when I began to discover, and I talked a little bit about this last night, is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or or approving of them. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath what we might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in its nature, that it's, and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there were no metta in this world the world would have flown apart broken apart long ago There've been periods throughout our human history up until this very moment when there've been more when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world more peaceful times times of relative ease in the world and periods where the world has been or is increasingly unsettled more violent times. This very powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger once said, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha, of course, said it quite well also. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, if that's what our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of unconditional kindness for metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome, wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, never know. I'd like to spend just a few moments exploring some of the expectations of what we might think of, as the experience of matter, or what we think it's supposed to be. I think that probably many people expect metta to be a feeling, a very familiar feeling. So we look for some familiar felt sense. And of course, our looking, our expectation is based on something that we're familiar with it's pretty hard, uh, if not uh, impossible, to look for something that we don't know, to look for something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes, metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense but we can get caught we can get stuck in expecting this and it's actually limiting metta as I've mentioned isn't sentimental it's not romantic these are both totally conditional experiences and metta isn't even a particularly juicy feeling the heart the mind that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises and it may not be a feeling that we think of and are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and to connect with others directly, clearly, patiently and fearlessly with a mind that's a heart that's free of ill will. So we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And as we discover, it's not so easy. There's so many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through, as we've talked about, and then let go of. Within our, as we practice I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if our practice is to unfold reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits there's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya The Buddha's one of the collections of the teachings of the Buddha. It's the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place just after the completion of the three month rainy rains retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for all their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is a sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as the Buddha is often called in the suttas, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jettis Grove at Anatha, on Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said to him, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. The Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha saying, the Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Blessed One called another monk and said, go monk and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, the Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden and the Venerable Sariputta responded saying, yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda Taking the keys, went around to all the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha after bowing to him and sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology the venerable Sariputra responded Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula Rahula was the Buddhist son when he was 18 years old you taught him how to contemplate the nature of earth water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop, to develop the virtues of love compassion, joy, and equanimity Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth, whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body and the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk and hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things spoiled with, soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, do I dwell with a heart that is like water. Vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, and thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over clean things and unclean things and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might go on and hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I have committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accuse the venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you com- committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accuse Sariputta falsely, wrongfully wrongly and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offenses, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then he turned to the venerable Sariputta, the Buddha, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on the very spot. The Buddha had a sense of humor. It doesn't come out too often. But <laughs> and Sariputta said, I shall forgive him. Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three times to each other and reconciled. For many of us, there are points along the way of our practice where the specific direction of unconditional kindness needs to be turned around towards ourselves. And as some of you know, it's not so easy to do, maybe not so easy to accept once we begin to do it because of what might be very strong conditioning that's told us that maybe we're unworthy or unlovable or that it's selfish to love oneself. And we may have taken on and unwittingly carried on and become very identified with this attitude, this relationship to ourself as who we think we are over and over and over again. Taken on and taken in some karma or kama in Pali that's been moving maybe through our family, through our culture, for years, maybe for generations. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up, we wake up to knowing that we have a choice. This aspect of waking up is sometimes coming through some strong suffering, some strong dukkha, or it may come through a clear knowing, a very clear sense of the unsatisfactory nature of this attitude or from some degree of understanding, some degree of insight, that our predicament is unnecessary. It's helpful sometimes in your practice when a lot of contracted states come up and we get caught in them to ask yourself a question, a very simple question. Is this necessary? Is this necessary? We can wake up to knowing that we don't have to be run by any particular karmic predicament. We have a choice to step off the karmic wheel, step out of the karmic predicament. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to the fact that we can change our mind. And that, in fact, our mind is changing through our practice. So as I've said uh, maybe a couple times, our practice directs us towards being selfish in the right way. Directing us towards connecting with and accepting how it is in any given moment in our body, in our mind, in our heart without this capacity to connect and accept, we'll never be able to see the true nature of things. And instead be connecting with some imaginary experience, some idea of what's occurring, not with what's actually happening. And again, it takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes lots of metta, lots of metta energy directed towards ourself to be open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. For instance, as we've talked about to some degree, metta doesn't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation. Metta changes our mind. Practice is about making the choice to transform our heart, the choice to transform the mind so that we embody love. And I think it's a courageous choice. It actually opens the heart to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but to really stay still be here, be present in relationship to what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year for two months and the second year for one month. And one student who stayed the whole two months uh, for the two months of practice the first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful big city businessman in Warsaw. And he had been very diligently practicing Zen and karate for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Menta Retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in um, a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, and living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear, much of the time throughout his childhood with the fear still present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thoughts, words, and actions of that same ill temper. And he described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Very unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. In being introduced to the Manta teachings and practice which were new for him, He found himself very interested and quite attracted to these teachings and practices. And at some point during our two-month intensive practice period, he decided to take on the phrase, may I love myself completely just as I am in the present moment. And he decided to take it on as his practice for the whole of the next year after he returned home to Warsaw. Because of his Zen training, he created a kind of koan. A koan being a question that cannot be answered in any logical way, linear linear logical way. So he created a kind of koan for himself by changing one word of that phrase. He said, instead of saying, may I, he said, can I, can I love myself completely just as I am in the present moment? And he silently said this koan over and over again during his sitting practice, in situations at work with his employees, at home with his family, whenever he felt angry, enraged. He said that he often remembered to stop and to be still for just a few seconds and then silently repeat the koan, even in the midst of anger. And he said more often as the year of practice, that year of practice went on, he remembered the practice just as the feelings of anger began to arise, which he found seemed to dissolve the anger quite quickly when he would repeat the phrase or the koan. The next year, when he came back uh, to the retreat center to sit with me again for the month, There had been really an enormous transformation in this man. It was quite inspiring. Recognizing that our human heart is naturally, intuitively loving and caring. Recognizing that. So from this perspective, our practice isn't about working to get something or attain something, but rather it's about allowing the heart, the mind, through our practice, to be loving-kindness itself. So from this perspective, we can turn right around, holding the question in awareness, and ask, who loves? who loves. There is metta. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. It belongs to no one. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, and it's inexhaustible. As we persevere in our practice, there's a deepening of self-confidence, self-respect, and patience. A gentle and yet very powerful strength and growing more pervasive selflessness that begins to show up and begins to mature. Our capacity to meet all the myriad and changing facets of life And the various vicissitudes of life, meeting them face on with sensitivity and a deeper wisdom expands. In closing this evening's talk, I'd like to share another story with you, a story about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Sue was born on March 15th in 1974 in the Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters and her mother in a three-bedroom house on Pine Ridge. And even today, people still talk about what a strict mother Chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after school activities that she let them take part in were structured and chaperoned, unsupervised wanderings and and later on cruising in cars were completely out. In an interview when she was a teenager, Suanne said that she and her sisters came up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow w- was the mother, was strongly anti drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick had belonged for many years to a very small but very adamant group uh, minority that takes this stance. When Suanne was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on a New Year's Eve, on New Year's Eve, and the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman, the mother, was too distraught to do anything. And so Sue Ann called the ambulance and called the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and made a video during her uh, school years in a kind of uh, urging her fellow students in a kind of stern and wooden tone. And as a high schooler, she used to travel to different cities and conventions with like-minded teenagers. Raul Bradford, who was a former Pine Ridge teacher and the coach of the team the basketball team, and also a friend of the of Big Crow family, was one of Sue Ann's most uh, big supp- biggest supporters. He said Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, in relation to Suanne, you have to understand, Rawl said, that Suanne didn't respond to peer pressure. Suanne was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me, he said. It dawned on me that if a 16 year old girl, could have the guts to say these things that maybe us adults should pay attention to. I haven't had a drink since the day she died, he said. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did all of them. Cross-country, cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Suanne was in the fifth grade, she heard uh, somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this daily exercise quite faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, and her mother and her sisters, getting very uh, very tired of the sound. So for variety, Suanne would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipes until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired suan tended to get into foul trouble in basketball games as the referees ruled quite strictly in tournament games and suan was used to a much more headlong style of play in the district playoffs against the team from red cloud suan scored 31 points at one one game Some people who live in cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. In their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When the teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, The question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and a distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school in Leeds, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leeds to play a basketball game, and Sue Ann at that point was a full member of the team. She was a freshman; she was fourteen years old. In getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries—a kind of "woo-woo" sound. The usual plan for the pre-game warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line and take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go back to their bench at courtside. And then after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. And usually the Thorps, the Lady Thorpes, lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team this evening was waiting in the hallway, Leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some of the fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. And others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. And Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Suanne said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Suanne Ann stood first in line. <coughs> She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Suanne went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. And her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they'd stop. Suanne turned to Donnie DeCorey, her cousin, and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at the center of the court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders, and began... I always cry when I read this. (laughs) And began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Suanne knew all the traditional dances. She'd completed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was pow wowing like get down, Donita DeKorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, All they could hear was her Lakota song. Zouane dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie de and ran a lap around the circle, around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball right through the hoop with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at the center court in the gym. At lead. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. The real results of our practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation, do what seems to come naturally and then after the fact realize that you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. <coughs> It's no big deal, you might say or think. Someone might ask you how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done. And you think and say, it's no big deal. But in a way it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities really changes your life and changes the lives of everybody you encounter. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of unconditional loving-kindness is strong. Metta develops of straightforwardness, And it clarifies our ability to express what we know to be true without fear, without anger, without hesitation. There's a great difference between saying something or acting from a place of wisdom, of clear, complete, intuitive understanding based on our inner knowledge of its truth rather than our words or actions coming out in a harsh way from the place of fear, or anger, or pride. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle, because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. So I'd like to close the talk with an instruction from the Buddha that we've already heard a couple of times. Maybe by the end of the retreat you'll know it by heart. It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.